Hello, friends. We're back. It's Hit Factory. My name is Aaron. My name is Carly. And it's just the two of us today for the first time in a little while. Yeah. And I don't really talk to you like alone ever. That's true. In real life, outside of the the context of the podcast. We are never in communication. No. Save for uh, the handful of hours once a week where we sit down with a guest and talk with them about a movie from the 1990s. Our guests don't know it, but we're really using them as talk therapy. That's true. <laughs> we uh, we have taken a vow of silence to better understand the sound of a whisper. That is what we're doing in our spare time when we're not on the microphone. So really every time we get on this show, you're hearing our vocal cords unencumbered and really <laughs> use, being used for the, the very first time in seven eight ten days no my entire job is me talking about bullshit so it's you screaming a lot i hear a lot (laughs) of that a lot of screaming and a lot of like affected laughter that's right yeah yeah well that's most of what a job is it actually really is yeah and if you're listening (laughs) to this you are a patron of our show uh congratulations congratulations good for you thank you so much for being a a patron very good call um, and tell your friends about this program and to subscribe to our show, because if you, uh, get, I don't know, another 900 of them or so, at least one of us gets to quit our job. Not me. Not you. No. <laughs> it's me. We would not survive. Spoiler. <laughs> it's me. We do appreciate each and every one of our patrons. We probably do. more than you realize. <laughs> we, we don't let on. We try to play it really cool. We, but <laughs> that's our whole gig. Is I feel just... really deeply about all of you. I'm not being sarcastic. Well, many of you are uh, some of our best friends in the entire <laughs> world um, who we've only ever met through the ephemera of social media. A handful. Yeah. But we love you. We love you dearly and sincerely more than a lot of people we know in the meat world. Yeah. That's for oh, sure. Oh, for sure. Most people <laughs> I encounter, I really can't stand. But today we are talking about a movie uh, and it is an erotic thriller. It's a sexy movie. Okay. But like... I think that this movie is like really excited to call itself an erotic thriller. Yeah. But I also think, and we can get into this in the conversation, but I want to just lay it here at the outset, that this movie is also a little bit of like a police procedural movie. It definitely is. And I mean, given who the director is, this should not surprise us, but it is a little bit of like a hard-boiled kind of crime thriller um, with sexy elements. Yes. I was actually, I think, a little bit surprised that how little the sex factored in, especially given that the principal sex object in the movie is one Linda Fiorentino, who is like one of the sexiest women on the planet. She's out of control. Especially at this period in her career, um, coming off The Last Seduction, which we've done on the program as well. Uh, She's never looked better. She's never been better in terms of her performances. She's very good in the movie. Mm-hmm. She doesn't get a ton of time. She doesn't really get a whole lot to do. And I, I think there's a reason for it. Initially, I think I was turned off by that um, in a non-hetero way, like turned off to the movie. Yeah. Also that, though, because you wanted more of her. You want more of her. Yes. Uh, but I think at first, when I didn't quite understand what this movie was doing, I thought less of it because of how little she was in the movie. And what then, movie are we talking about? That's a great place to start, isn't it? <laughs> uh, today we are talking about William Friedkin's uh, erotic thriller from 1995, Jade. Yeah. Uh, this one comes courtesy of a poll we did on Twitter. Our good friend Bill Ryan, who was on the show last week, 
uh, stacked the deck. He uh, stole the election and uh, <laughs> marshaled all of the forces of Twitter to rig the vote in favor of this movie. As is his right. As, as is his right. As an American. <laughs> <laughs> he leveraged his uh, powerful Twitter influence and uh, got this this poll overwhelmingly in favor of Jade. Some other options on that list were Disclosure. We also briefly thought about doing Sliver, the Sharon Stone and Billy Baldwin one, um, written by the same gentleman, Joe Esterhaus, who wrote this screenplay. And a one basic instinct. And basic instinct. And Showgirls. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about Esterhaus, but this was also the height of his career. But really the impetus for this began even before that poll um, there was a, a New Yorker roundtable with some critics that went live right around Valentine's. Day. I think it was like the 15th or 16th of February. Cool. Yeah. It was uh, a piece that was widely shared around uh, Twitter and ridiculed at large as well. Uh, it was called The Sex Scene is Dead. Long live the sex scene. Hmm. Yeah. I already don't want to read that. <laughs> well, you know, it, it makes some pretty topical and, and generally true points, right? That uh, most of the movies that people are watching these days are movies that are made for everybody, right? Like we don't have this abundance of mid-budget adult movies anymore. And that's really why we want to talk about Jade and, and talk about erotic thrillers in the 90s because it really was the last time after maybe a, a brief resurgence in the early aughts where they were still able to kind of make these mid-budget thrillers that were R-rated and, and adult in their content. But the 90s is where this thing really, really took off. And I, I almost want to ban the phrase from the show because we say it so often when we say you could not make a movie like this today. The reasons you couldn't make a movie like this today are not because of its politics or... Uh, because of any sort of like problematic elements of it. There are some of those maybe, but I think that the movie is actually uh, rather aware of its more problematic tendencies and, and impulses and exploring those things. I Absolutely. think it's very smart in the way that it handles that. But you can't make this movie anymore because studios don't take a gamble on something that costs 30 to $50 million uh, that will return you know, just as much and break even, or maybe if it's a really successful one, like a basic instinct, pull in maybe two or three times what it costs to make. That kind of return is not what they're looking for anymore. They're going to spend $500 million on the next Avengers movie uh, and then make a billion dollars at the box office, right? Uh, I was lucky enough to be offline <laughs> when this discourse was happening on Twitter. and You were very lucky to be offline. When you were telling me about it, I was not at all stirred to go read this piece. Um, but I did for this conversation. And and I think, you know, we could talk about the the sort of absence of the sex scene in today's cinematic landscape. But the bigger conversation is not the sex scene. It is the way in which <laughs> genres have been hollowed out um, to the point where basically only franchises and reboots are the things that get made yeah. because there is such a focus on a large margin of return and revenue. Um, so, you know, I think 
the way that this relates to sex scenes in particular is just a sort of unwillingness to be risky in any way. Yeah. Financially, sort of, you know, thematically, um, just across the board, it feels like there are fewer and fewer movies that are willing to explore complicated ideas, things that, you know, other people might argue are mutually exclusive, but certainly aren't. And that's one thing I love about this movie is that it holds a lot of things that feel seemingly contradictory together at once. And it's just for grownups. It's like a movie it's made for grownups. just for grownups. It's not for the largest number of people possible, which includes children. Right. It's not a four-quadrant movie. It's not like a PG-13, you know, IP rehash for like the... the 25th time we see a live action Alvin and the Chipmunks or something like that. I don't think they've made that many, but one of these days, you know, we'll be living in that media landscape for sure. Probably in the metaverse, just sitting on our couch. <laughs> yes. Uh, slowly hollowing out, getting bed sores, you know. Uh, but it, in I this... feel like I'm already doing that. <laughs> <laughs> We're almost there. I mean, if I'm being honest, I give, Anyways. It, I give it five more years. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Five more good years of podcasting. Okay, that. great. Yeah. Sitting here rolling over to avoid bed sores with the microphone in hand <laughs> instead of an Oculus over our eyes. Cool. Yeah. Can't wait. But anyway, in this piece, uh, you know, it starts with a, a conversation with Paul Verhoeven. Lovely Paul Verhoeven, who we adore on the show. Lovely Paul. Uh, just started the year off with uh, an episode on Showgirls with Corinne Smith. Great episode. Great movie. Also written by Joe Esterhaus in 1995. Guy was rolling in it. Rolling. Just taking all that money to the bank, you know, having a conniption over maybe his multiple Razzie nominations, but, <laughs> you know, wiping his tears away with $100 bills. Seriously. Uh, but it starts with a, a conversation with Paul Verhoeven, who just released uh, Benedetta. Last year. Fantastic movie, by the way. One of the best of last Incredible year. Incredible movie. Guy is still knocking it out of the park. Um, has made, I think, actually two of my favorite movies of his entire career back to back in the last six years now. L, incredible. Benedetta, also incredible. Great, great, great movies. Um, but he's he's not working in the Hollywood studio system anymore. And he keeps teasing the sort of like triumphant return, you know, coming back and, and making some sort of like sci-fi action picture uh, with an American studio sometime in the future. I don't think it's ever going to happen again. I think it's going to probably materialize to a certain point and then dissipate just as quickly. Um, just it, Hollywood sensibilities are even more allergic now to Verhoeven and his proclivities than they were in... 1995, 1997, just not going to happen. I would say it would be likely uh, if he was the type to compromise for his vision and or against his vision, I should say. And he's not like we just know that he's not. Yeah, because he's a fearless filmmaker and he wants to put on screen exactly what he intends to. Um, by any means, you know, this conversation starts with him sort of saying, like, I do not think that movies specifically in Hollywood, specifically in America, have any room for sex scenes anymore, right? This this four quadrant approach doesn't leave room for it. We make movies for the most possible people. It's it's not uh, fruitful for the kinds of movies that I used to make, like a Basic Instinct, like a Showgirls, even like a Starship Troopers. So this conversation is sort of built around this premise with a couple of these New Yorker film critics. And again, some correct things. 
that they are are getting at. Okay. Uh, until they get to a bit where they start talking about Benedetta and it's sort of minutia. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the part that started getting shared around really widely. They bring up the sex in Benedetta. And I might just have to read it because otherwise I, I won't do it justice here. Cool. Um, I, I'm not going to name the critics. Um, and in fact, I, I, I wouldn't be able to because they're just uh, listed here by their initials as the interview goes on. Not going to, you know, smoke anyone out here on the show. But, but this is what's written in the piece. You can find it yourself if you want to. Uh, the first critic says, to me, the sex is the absolute worst part of that movie, meaning Benedetta. As they go on, one of the critics says, Doreen, I know you saw Benedetta, the last Verhoeven movie, and I did too. I wonder if, naming the critics, and one of the critics jumps in and says, I watched quite a lot of it. Already a red flag there. Already a red flag. Not I watched it, just I watched quite a lot of it. Uh, and says, the sex scenes kept coming one after another. I was like, these ladies are fucking. They go on, I'm skipping a little bit here, but to say, I think counterintuitively what you're saying about Benedetta is that the sex could have been dancing, could have been fighting, could have been any other kind of physical contact because I didn't feel like that film was actually interested in sex as a channel for human connection. Yes, exactly. It was about Verhoeven saying, look, I can go here. I'm not going to shy away from this. And this is, I think, pretty much like the entire crux of the the thing that was going around here um rightfully a lot of people were pulling their hair out at this it just to me fundamentally misunderstands i think the nature of verhoven's work and also just like sex in cinema in general sex in real life in general like none of these people sound like they have fucked anyone (laughs) Like in weeks, months, years, I don't know, man. Like I was reading this article and when it got to the uh, sort of round table conversation specifically where they were critiquing the sex scenes, I just like was jumping out of my skin. The thing that drives me insane about it is that it like we watched that movie, you know, it's not a subtle movie. Mm -hmm. It just to me, I think makes the point that they're sort of making more largely which is like audiences today aren't primed to experience sex scenes it, it just seems like we we don't deserve sex scenes anymore in movies frankly mm-hmm. i don't think their response speaks to the movie itself at all um but rather how dried up literally our <laughs> our sort of uh, our offering of movies has become when it comes to the thing that they're claiming they want, which is human connection. And I think like on the point of this sex in Benedetta could have been dancing, they can't have it both ways because just before that, in the breath prior, they say, the shit leaves nothing to the imagination. And then they're like, this sex could have been dancing. And it's like, well, which is it? Are you a prude or are you like, you know, wanting, you know, hardcore porn or something? Like, it's it's this strange sort of remove from inserting themselves into the feelings that the movie is trying to explore. And that sex, violence 
pain, grief, or otherwise, I think is the thing that audiences can't do anymore. It's a broader sort of indication of our lack of empathy as a society. Like I just don't get the sense that people watch movies and, and try to like, live into them or relate to them they can't experience them they can't experience them in any way that isn't just like commodified right like we we get things packaged for us wholesale in very easy to digest ways right like we engage with trauma narratives uh through the spectacle of fucking wandavision right like of superheroes shooting lasers right like that's how we deal with loss and grief we do the same you know, through our just like recycled, rehashed IP explorations, right? Like we uh, mourn the loss of a bygone era and of like childhood nostalgia and wonder and all those things through uh, like CGI ghost versions of Harold Ramis in a Ghostbusters remake. Like that's that's what we're primed to engage with an experience. And I think it's one of those things, like you said, it's like we just we don't engage with the sex at face value, right? Like it, it, these critics seem to not really be able to contend with whether or not they want to see eroticism and like flesh and like some sort of carnal impulses on screen or whether they would have it just be like a train going into a tunnel like North by Northwest during like the right. during like the Hayes Code, right? Like, which is it? Do you want the implication of sex or do you actually want sex? That's my point exactly. I also think that their indigestion toward Benedetta is not just an indicator of uh, something that audiences experience with media, but I also think is something that comes up um, in sort of the animating political ideas uh, of our society, and that is an aversion to things that are new, Mm -hmm. an aversion to things that are different and distinct from something that you have experienced previously, not an iteration on that thing, not a reboot, not a spinoff, right? But something wholly and completely new. The thing that troubles me about that conversation most and the aforementioned more broadly, is that it is pantomiming as championing like a progressive view, nay, a pro-female view. I will go as far to say that. And it is actually deeply sexist, incredibly retrogressive. Yeah, very puritanical. And insanely oppressive. And, And that is... Uh, a thing that I see so often, particularly from this like media f- and like film critic cohort, very online cohort of people, is that like oftentimes when they are relitigating these movies from the past that they find problematic, they are doing it under the veil of, you know, um, like this Me Too animus. And what they end up doing is reducing female identity down to like really discrete, constrained ideas that they think demonstrate some sort of liberation. Yeah. Well, and it just like, you know, it it positions the critic as sort of like the end all be all and also removes any sort of semblance of 
consideration from the the filmmaker, right? Like like a Absolutely. lot of this stuff where we relitigate these things from the past and when we talk about problematic tendencies or we talk about particular filmmakers, especially of, you know, a, a previous generation. And, and Verhoeven now is of a previous generation. He's 83, I think. Uh, you know, there is this sort of like knee-jerk judgment of those types of filmmakers that they don't understand, right? That like they're not with the times enough uh, to, to understand that what they're showing you is meant to be challenging, is meant to be problematic, is meant to have you feel a sense of revulsion, is meant to repel you, right? Like that is a thing that, especially in like the current age of like rehashes and like four quadrant fucking, you know, IP bullshit that we have lost a sense of, which is what if this is meant and intended to make you feel uncomfortable? And what if that discomfort is actually the thing that is more progressive than spoon feeding you something that feels like feminism yeah. out of the box, right? right? What, what if that thing is actually more liberatory than you're, than you're letting on, which I think is a good segue into today's movie, Jade. How could you let them do this to you, Trina? They didn't do anything to me, David. It was my choice. I was in control and I liked it. She couldn't get enough of it. She loved it. I saw that side of you before. Oh, did the tape turn you on? You know, a couple of those creeps, they didn't even want me. They wanted this other girl. One of those guys was the governor. She must have rocked his world. Was Medford blackmailing you? I don't get blackmailed, Mr. Corelli. I cheated on my husband. I didn't know I could be arrested for it. She's got no alibi and we got a prince on the hatch. If you're gonna charge her, you charge her right now! It was all right in front of me. I just didn't want to see it. I know too much. Anything happens to Trina Gavin, what if something happens to you? I need your help, David, I'm afraid. Who am I speaking with? So in Jade, as I've already mentioned, I had sort of an initial kind of allergy to the way that it handled its characters, the way that its story concluded, and specifically, I think, the general absence of Linda Fiorentino from the movie. That never really gets resolved, and I felt a sense of frustration until I kind of understood this movie to be an exploration of that exact thing, right? And it doesn't have to be with a uh, sexually promiscuous, you know, duplicitous kind of female or even like a sex worker, right? Like, like Linda Fiorentino is in the movie. It's about men and how challenging men find it to like understand the female psyche or female desire and how much they fear it right <laughs> because the movie is like at, at its core a very simple detective story we sort of you know by by way of our main character david corelli played by david caruso in the movie <laughs> corelli caruso Big jump. corelli caruso yeah uh david is david in this movie we know the answer to the mystery from the get-go. He, which we find out by the end of the movie, the first time you watch it around, he has this thing solved from like the second scene and he's seeking something else. He's trying to find something beyond it. He's trying to realize some 
answer besides the thing that is like the most simple. Someone he knows did a bad thing. And it turns into this like very labyrinthine, very windy movie that reveals a lot of different textures and layers and plots. But at the core of it, it's all just around this infatuation with a woman and an inability to understand her. Mm. That was my take on the movie. I don't know how you felt about it. What, what did you feel about William Friedkin's Jade, Carly? I liked it. I think it's incredibly watchable. I would say it's more thrilling than it is erotic. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is erotic in terms of uh, the way that sometimes mystery and uh, mystique can be erotic. I wasn't frustrated with this movie until we got to the end. We got to the end and I was like, huh, okay. And I kind of was left scratching my head and also like, frankly, wanting a little bit more. It ends very abruptly. But upon thinking about it a bit more, what I like about that is that a lot of other erotic thrillers and frankly, police procedurals, of which I think this movie is both, end really neatly, right? Yeah. Like even Basic Instinct, which kind of ends with a little bit of a cliffhanger or at least sort of like this open question of like what's going to happen between Sharon Stone's character and uh, Michael Douglas's character. I love the ending of Basic Instinct. There's like that that fade to black where you get the happy ending and then you get the other ending that feels like the real ending, which is oh, we know this guy is fucking dead. Like, this woman's a murderer, and he he doesn't care, like, at this point. Like, Sharon Stone is so hot that he's okay getting murdered by her. The thing that I love about that movie is that the audience finishes the film. Yep. Right? Mm-hmm. You know what happens, um, and, and you close the story yourself. So I think these genres oftentimes really operate in these tidy little cleanups at the end because that is part of the thrill is that you get taken on this ride uh you get to see you know mysteries being solved and questions being raised and then answered um you get the thrill of the eroticism and also oftentimes of the violence but then you get that all resolved so you can sort of move on with your happy little life right and that's what's satisfying about those films The fact that this movie doesn't end that way, I think, is, in my mind, more of an indicator of, uh, one, the thing that we were talking about at the top of this conversation, which is writers and creatives taking risks. Um, And Esther House is doing that here, Mm -hmm. I think, probably at Friedkin's urging, because Friedkin is a very thoughtful and um, novel filmmaker. And two, that when we are talking about sex, when we are talking about relationships, when we are talking about politics, when we're talking about secrecy and lies and um, betrayal, that's never tidy. That is never something that resolves perfectly the way that it does oftentimes in a movie. Movies make us think that that's what life does. But that's not how real life and real people behave. And so all of this to say, I actually 
appreciated the ending more because I felt like it was doing right by the content. Yeah. I mean, this movie is a a Friedkin film from front to back, right? And there are a lot of, I think, characteristic things about his particular style, the way that he shoots things. I mean, there's a multiple like vehicle scenes in here that like if you didn't know this was a Friedkin movie from the credits uh, or from some of, you know, the, the, the meaner kind of like bent to its narrative, you know, right away, as soon as you see David Caruso flip a car down like a San Francisco street mm-hmm. to avoid a, a bus full of children. It is built around components of a thriller. It does have sex in it, but it's a completely different kind of examination. And I think, maybe an overused term, but a deconstruction of the erotic thriller that people weren't expecting or anticipating that makes it even more interesting than it otherwise would be if it were just, you know, cut clean. And you mentioned, you know, uh, Esterhaus wrote the original script for this movie and both he and Friedkin have been uh, very candid about the fact that the movie is essentially a complete rewrite of the original Esterhaus script mm-hmm. by Friedkin. So much so that Esterhaus almost walked, um, almost said, fuck this, almost took his name off of the movie. They paid him like an additional like two or three million dollars <laughs> to stick around and like get another script deal at Paramount. Um, but it feels very Friedkin-esque, you know, like if you watch any of his other cop procedurals like if you know the french connection if you know to live and die in la like if you know these movies it feels like that right it doesn't have those tidy endings um it has sort of an abruptness to it it has a lack of conclusions lots of loose ends i'm gonna make people mad with this next thing that i say i just know it. it i think i thought this movie was great and i know lots of people were kind of championing this movie for us like on twitter ahead of time even bill ryan uh who i i think think the movie is interesting but don't love the movie right Mm -hmm. i have like convinced i've talked myself into believing that this movie is actually like secretly great cool which don't trust me on anything (laughs) listener like i am i am struggling with this lately i feel like i have no capacity anymore to differentiate between what is good and what is bad objectively i loved not loved i really liked the new texas chainsaw massacre (laughs) that netflix just put out Everyone else seems to hate it. I feel like I'm kind of taking crazy pills. Like it seems to be doing all of the things that people uh, complain that it wasn't doing or vice versa. We're like worried that it was going to do like it didn't do those things. Anyway, just don't trust me, I guess. But I, nah, I think that's that I, the man talking. Don't but, <laughs> tr- trust your gut, dude. Okay, like. <laughs> I, I'm going to trust my gut. I'm going to speak with with authority. I'm going to speak with confidence on this. I think this movie is actually secretly brilliant. I think I, I think it knows what it's trying to do. I'm not sure that it's 100% successful, but I think that it's at least going for something above what a lot of people believe it is. When I watched this movie the other night with you, Carly, I had this sensation like I was watching... Uh, Night Moves, the Arthur Penn movie. Mm. And this is where I, I say I'm going to get in trouble and people are going to be mad at me because that movie is like uh, a masterpiece and a classic. I love that movie. I do not think that this movie is of the same caliber in terms of quality, in terms of filmmaking as that one is. But there is something about the sensation of watching it that feels like this movie is it's equal and opposite in terms of its theme, right? Whereas Night Moves is a story where Gene Hackman uh, is 
this detective trying to solve a mystery and you get all of these sort of frayed wires and broken connections, all of these signifiers that have multiple meanings and so can be pieced together into uh, this sort of mosaic that makes sense as the answer to the riddle by the end of it. But we've come to find out by the end is not the truth that all of these things have been crossed in the wrong direction, that he has arrived at the exact wrong conclusion, so much so that he's been blinded to the involvement of other characters and players that we've seen throughout the movie. And by the end, like the the big climax ends in this cacophony of violence involving people we didn't even expect to be there. This movie is like the opposite of that. There are these signifiers, there are these symbols, there are these sort of deconstructed components of that detective story, but they are all empty. They're all vacant, right? They're just a symbol meant to lead us down a path to try to connect those dots ourselves. When in reality, the person at the center of the movie, David Caruso's character, has it solved. He knows the answer. And by the end of it, we're given the answer. And if we'd been paying attention, we would have known it all along. But there's something about the way that it's pieced together that you begin to also believe like there's more here than just what's on the surface. And it turns out there is. There's corruption, there's sex, there's violence, all these things, but they are a byproduct of the refusal to just accept the simple answer that somebody did a bad thing and we know who it is. I'm totally jazzed about that take. If we are to understand that this movie is ostensibly, you know, crafting a male perspective, right? It stands to reason then that Linda Fiorentino's character is also herself an empty signifier. Mm -hmm. And I also think that is an interesting idea to pull out further and apply to Linda Fiorentino as a person, as an actress. Mm -hmm. The other thing I really like about your argument is that it, to me, explains and kind of validates something that I was feeling when I was watching the movie but couldn't quite articulate until now, which is that the movie is not sexy, per se. Yeah, it's not. There are a lot of um, images of sex and um, paraphernalia of sex. Clitorifics, you might want to call them. <laughs> Butt plugs designed <laughs> for the perfect asshole. I laughed out loud when, when that character said clitorifics. Um, and the immortal line, of course, Crystal uh, Beluga. Wolfgang Puck, it's a fuck house. <laughs> it's like... Perfect. Yes. <laughs> um, so there are a lot of like sex things and sex images and like indicators of sex and sex scenes in the film, sometimes uh, shown on videotape. Um, but the movie is not sexy. And I was thinking this in particular in the sort of opening 20 minutes or so of the film, we have first and foremost this really kind of uh, sumptuous, um, expressive brushstroke opening credit sequence. Mm -hmm. Lensed, by the way, by uh, Hit Factory favorite Andre Barkaliak. After the credit sequence, we immediately go to a just pop and mansion, ostensibly <laughs> in Seacliff in San Francisco, which is where this movie takes place. Great San Francisco movie, by the way. Fantastic San Francisco movie. Um, and we're panning through this house upstairs. 
we're seeing literal da Vinci's and like Michelangelo's in this person's house, incredibly ornate, just like guilt stuffed to the gills. Um, uh, just a, a, a space dripping with, um, kind of Baroque ornamentation and, and money. Uh, after that, we cut to a black and white ball, a lot of fancy dresses, tuxedos, champagne, columns, lights, another really ornate, expensive environment. After that, we're in Chinatown. Yeah. And we're in the middle of, um, I think, uh, a Lunar New Year. So there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of sort of decoration. It's perpetually Lunar New Year, by the way. There's always like this vivid, vibrant celebration going on in Chinatown in this movie. And I think one of the reasons this movie is in San Francisco is because there are parts that are very material to the movie that take place in Chinatown that I don't think could take place anywhere else and Mm -hmm. be kind of doing the thing that Friedkin wants them to do. Um, And then we're at a church and it's not just like your 1970s, like good old towny church. It is like... (laughs) a beautiful, columned, incredibly ornate, again, just a wash in golds and reds space. All of this is beautiful, but none of it is erotic. No. In fact, it's all like pristine to the point of alienation. You know, like there is like this interesting like othering going on. And I think like if there's a knock against this movie, it might be that it kind of like falls at times into this weird kind of like Orientalism. Like there's like an othering of For sort sure. of like Asian culture, even in the score, James Horner's score in this movie, uh, fantastic, vibrant, like unforgettable, especially in those like big climactic moments. And especially in like that opening sequence, but even down to like, you know, the, the idea of Jade and like this sort of like locket of pubic hair. <laughs> that uh that Linda Fiorentino has left for this this wealthy man the the visits to Chinatown there's sort of like this like othering it's like uh used as an element of mystery and like a world beyond the world this sort of second level and echelon of society that we're not privy to kind of othering kind of weird um but does work to an extent like it definitely I mean there there are moments that are breathtaking when we're in Chinatown and in in and around like the alleyways and during the parade we get a great cameo by uh the the late wonderful Victor Wong from uh Big Trouble in Little China in like a mahjong parlor the east has historically been feminized um on a global stage and the west has historically been masculinized and I think that that is something that the creators here are playing into sometimes problematically Um, And other times I think it kind of works. But back to your point about this movie being full of signifiers, I think this film ultimately is greater in its parts than it is as a sum of a whole. In terms of it not being sexy, because a lot of these things are simply signifiers of eroticism or very directly commenting on our desire for eroticism, that goes back to the thing we were talking about at the very beginning of this conversation, which is this sort of smoothing of our collective movie-going 
audience brain. Mm -hmm. And that we've come to this point now where when a movie like Benedetta is giving us eroticism, human connection, um, spectacle, yes, but also like real tangible intimacy and like not leaving anything to the imagination. We don't understand that that is there to challenge us potentially, as you say. And this movie is doing exactly that. It's just doing it in a different way. It is challenging the viewer to fit this movie into the box of being an erotic thriller. It's also challenging the viewer to make Linda Fiorentino something that she isn't in this film. She's not the character in The Last Seduction. Right. But we want to believe she but is. But we want her to be. And we we want more of her. And right? many people in the film do think that that is who she is. They yes. think that she's a killer. They think that she is something uh, more venomous, more vicious than simply an unfulfilled woman who's seeking out pleasures. Like that's all she's doing. And that answer is simple. Yes, but it's also messy and like fucking real life. Right. Mm -hmm. It's not cinematic. And all of this to say that, you know, in you talking more about the film and having had some time with it, I do really appreciate that this movie, which I'm sure would have been berated by these very same critics, you know, 25 years ago, um, is like exactly the thing they say that they're missing and that they want and that they clearly don't see is staring them in the face in a film like Benedetta and in a movie like this, right? Yeah. And and that's why I think they're, they're sort of pantomime for like a... a days gone by of film is like not actually genuine. Yeah. Well, I think it's, I think it's artificial in the sense too, that like a movie like this existed in 1995 and was met with the same kind of apprehension, the same sort of lack of genuine understanding of what it was doing. Right. It, the anticipation was there of it being a particular kind of, of product. You know, we we had even at the time commodified the idea of like what a mid-budget erotic thriller was and looked like and what it served to do. And this movie didn't do those things. It offered us something within that skin, within that uh, framework, which again is a thing I think that Verhoeven is really great at doing. He gives us familiar signifiers. He gives us familiar genres and and places and settings and does something deconstructive, does something uh, satirical, does something critical within that space this movie i think is doing the exact same thing you know and if we're getting into you know talking about the deconstruction of the erotic thriller the thriller elements too the thrilling stuff is even deconstructed almost to the point of like frustration there is an incredible breathtaking car chase scene in this movie that is unlike any car chase scene you've ever seen because of how many peaks and valleys it has like Caruso tails this, uh, I think it's a, like a Thunderbird or Firebird or something, right? Uh, after it hits Angie Everhart and sends her flying like 10 feet through the air in like a really brutal scene in uh, Washington Square Park. But there's this chase scene where 
you know, the, the tires are, are squealing, the smoke's coming out, the engines are revving. And then David Caruso loses the car. And the only reason we find it again is through like sheer luck. And he goes down a hill, like through this green belt. And immediately the chase picks up again until we hit a stoplight. You're, you're like six car lengths away and it's reduced down to this moment where we're at a red light and then the black Thunderbird veers through like several lanes of traffic into Chinatown, into the heart of Chinatown during the midst of, again, like a Lunar New Year parade. And for like five minutes, we're at a standstill in this car chase. It is deconstructed and refined down to the essence of a car chase, which is one car and another car in pursuit. When we were talking about that scene last night and you were bringing that up, I was like, yeah, it has all the things that you want from a car chase scene. Um, but it also has like the total opposite of those things. And then also in the same moment is like using a lot of those things differently. Like for example, one one thing we always see in car chase scenes is like a car blows through a fucking market and like vegetables go flying, right? Like <laughs> so right. vegetables are always flying. Like think of every like Jackie Chan picture yeah. from oh, yeah. like- there's, there's a cart uh, of something. Uh, from that Hong Kong action genre, right? Like there's always vegetables flying. <laughs> in this one sequence when they're at a dead stop- surrounded by nothing but bodies in Chinatown there are vegetables flying but it's because the people are throwing them at the car yeah they're punching out windows they're it's like not because to the them. car is you know sending boxes of of lettuce flying and just like even that little detail I was like oh yeah like we always see fucking produce in car chases but like here it's being hurled at the cars by people who are preventing the cars from moving. And that's just one example of the thing you're talking about, yeah. which is that like this, this expectation for a certain type of car chase is frustrated, despite the fact that all of the things and component parts in a car chase are present. Deep seated massage oil. And over here we have a harmony pillow. This pillow allows deeper penetration by positioning both partners most advantageously. It raises the female hips, facilitating male entry. You can inflate the pillow to varying degrees of hardness or softness while enjoying the thrill of rotary and floating action. Over here in the nightstand, we got about three grams of Coke. Some poppers, some assorted children's vitamins. My best guess is ecstasy. This is the room the governor was photographed in. Maybe it's his bridal suite. You looking here? Yeah, it's been photographed. Christelle, Beluga, Wolfgang Puck. It's a fuck house. The presence of David Caruso speaks to this concept as well. He is not a very charismatic leading man. Mm -hmm. You know, he's not particularly handsome. He's kind of vacant, you know, like this was sort of meant to be his kind of first foray into Hollywood after 
uh, you know, his his stint on NYPD Blue had ended. And before, of course, he became sort of the mainstay on CSI Miami. Right. But he is himself kind of like intentionally vacant. And maybe Caruso doesn't realize this about himself and know what's going on there. But I, I have to imagine that Friedkin does, that it's like he constantly betrays like this emptiness at the core of himself. He's just sort of this blank avatar at the center of the movie. Like, and also he's an assistant district attorney. He's not a cop, but he's like doing cop shit throughout the entire movie. He's doing cop shit the entire time. The other thing that's interesting about his character, if we're talking about signifiers and uh, we're turning this, this lens back toward the male side of, of the story he is reduced down purely to desire. And I don't just mean sexual desire, but just plain desire. Mm-hmm. He wants to figure this thing out that, as you say, he's already figured out, but he he wants there to be more, so he intends for there to be. Yeah. And, and this and this is a Friedkin trope too, right? Like the single-mindedness of, of like a man of principle even when that principle is is vacant and wrong you know like this is this is william peterson and to live and die in la right his partner is killed so he goes to any lengths to get the guy who did it even if that means like getting an fbi agent killed and like committing a crime himself this is the same as like popeye doyle right and in the french connection like that that single-mindedness is like very friedkin and it's not novel to you know talk about male desire but what is novel is that ultimately at the heart of this story is female desire and not female desire that is um, vindictive, right? Or has some sort of, you know, dark, sinister, violent uh, undergirding to it. But plain and simple, a woman who, as you said, just wants to be sexually satisfied mm-hmm. and and wants like any other woman to be thrilled. Yeah. In ways that are are confounding and frustrating even to the viewer, right? Like there's a I think of two very striking sort of definitive scenes in this movie with Linda Fiorentino. One of them is maybe uh one of the most challenging scenes in the movie, which is uh when we see her having sex with Chaz Palminteri with Matt Gavin as his character is named. And the entire scene takes maybe a, a minute, 90 seconds uh, of just kind of him moaning and thrusting on top of her. But we stay in a close-up on her face. There's sort of tears welled in the corner of her eyes that never fully drop. And she just looks disgusted and sad. And he doesn't recognize this or, or, or notice it at all. He is just like on top of her groaning grunting until he climaxes and then falls on top of her and there's not an ounce of pleasure or satisfaction in her whatsoever like it's actually like terror almost like it's just this like void that she feels when she's with him i love that scene because of how much i hated it yeah i mean it's hard to watch but it is a brilliant scene it's perfect it is absolutely perfect and you don't even have to ever see him to know that he's not even looking at her. Mm-hmm. He doesn't even see her. I think like there are ways I've seen that kind of scene done before where you like 
are seeing a woman who's unhappy and she sort of looks to the side and she's crying and we're supposed to feel bad for her. But this felt like it was coming from a place of understanding, like very subjective on Linda Fiorentino's character's mm-hmm. part. And I just like so appreciated that. And she plays it masterfully too. She like, does. There's, there's a very delicate balance between a sense of kind of like fear or despair and then something co- closer to just uh, emotionless remove. Yep. And I think she falls more on the latter side. Um, Yeah, that scene is is excellent. The other scene that I'm thinking of is yet another scene where she's engaging in sex. And this time she uh, is very much in control and has the, the, the power kind of firmly in her hands. And it's, uh, it's a sex scene that not many filmmakers, I think, would dare to do in their movie. Uh, she is in a set of heels, like stabbing and stepping on a dude's nuts. Uh, there's sort of like the implication that she's like having anal sex. She also like receives oral sex from this guy too. Like a, a, just a bunch of stuff that like is sort of like verboten and like, you know, um, not even like in like in like 90s erotic thriller or something that would be approached normally. Yep. Um, and Friedkin is like very explicit in interviews and conversations about the fact that he did that very purposefully that like he's trying to push boundaries of the kind of feminine position within sexual desire. Uh, but in this scene too, there is also a, a very explicit moment that I think is fascinating where she is shown with her face obscured by a stocking by like a, a, a pantyhose or something right and it's contorting her face her nose is kind of pressed up it's covering her it's almost like concealing her identity and she pulls it off you know this this movie is kind of obsessed with masks just this idea of like a face revealed and a face concealed and identities as such as well and that's a really defining moment for me in terms of this movie's themes as well when she is in this sort of sexually liberated position for a moment concealed and covered and she she pulls it off. I didn't know Kyle was taping any of it. I knew they were powerful men, but I had no idea he was using them. He told me they were friends of his. How many were there? <laughs> a lot. I don't know. I lost track. How could you let them do this to you? They didn't do anything to me, David. It was my choice. I liked it. I was in control. What about Matt? Don't fuck your husband, though. That's not what I'm talking about. What did you tell him? Nothing. He only knows about the man on the tape. Who were the others? Men with money. Reputations. I didn't have to fall in love with them, David. It was safe and... At least I thought it was. David, I know too much. The last thing that I wanted to bring up is this film's messaging around sort of uh, corruption within politics. Uh, I think it's a thing that, again, Friedkin kind of touted as being more transgressive than other uh, filmmakers of the time. But we, I mean, we see 
a really vindictive, really kind of awful politician at like the highest ranking levels of, of politics, like the, the governor of California. Gubernatorial, yes. his standing. And he is shown to be a man of contempt. He's shown to be a man who is uh, willing to let heads roll for the, the purposes of his own uh, political ascendancy. And by the end of this movie, like he doesn't really get any comeuppance. He is able to, you know, have sort of a, a plausible level of deniability. He says that, you know, these uh, malicious actors were acting independently, but like on his behalf, but he had nothing to do with it. And he gets away with it. He gets away with like killing multiple people in this movie for the sake of preserving his political image. For going back to signifiers the movie ends with what should be a really satisfying climactic confrontation between the lead cop dude and the ostensibly his villain. Mm -hmm. um, rather than it being satisfying, rather than him getting one up on the governor and saying, like, I've got you by the balls now. Like, you're coming with me downtown, right? Like, none of that happens. David is standing there kind of fecklessly saying, you got to, you got to come clean, buddy. You got to, <laughs> you got to come with me. Um, I don't even remember what he says, which is making my point. Um, and... <laughs> The governor just says, get the fuck out of my office. Yeah. And uh, David Caruso's character is also thinking about his own political ascendancy, right? Like he is preparing for an election the following year to take over as the DA. Which... I think that's why it's important. He's the assistant district attorney and not just like some detective, right? Right. Absolutely. Yeah. It's it's just a, a, a way to kind of inject this level of opportunism and expediency that he's always seeking um, and probably part of the reason why he doesn't immediately initiate the investigation or, or, you know, bring in Matt Gavin, bring in Chaz Palminteri's character, who, as I have already mentioned from the get go, we know is the culprit mm -hmm. or at least the character, David Corelli, David knows, Corelli is the, knows is the culprit, mm -hmm. um, which leads to uh, an excellent kind of mean spirited ending, which is a, a Friedkin trademark, you know, this, uh, revelation that Matt Gavin is the person who committed the murder, uh, that he's known all along, that his wife is this other person, is is Jade, you know, to these other men, and that he's a he's a dangerous man who she's now in a relationship with, and uh, that his single demand of her is that the next time they have sex, he wants to meet Jade. Yeah, I really really like this movie. And the more we talk about it, the more I realize, as you say, it is extremely thoughtful and it absolutely knows what it's doing. Friedkin knows what he's doing. He's proven that to us time and time again. This is becoming, you know, sort of Q1 of, of 2022 is our like, uh, you know, unfairly maligned secret masterpieces. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I feel like sometimes here, you know, this on top of like showgirls. Um, but, I, but I genuinely do think that this movie is much smarter than than people give it credit for i think it's much more worth your time than any sort of like metacritic or rotten tomatoes score would lead you to believe this thing is like 
at like a 13% or something like that. Rotten Tomatoes is stupid. It is. It's stupid. But like, you know, at a certain point you see that and think like, oh, if the critical consensus is is this negative, maybe maybe there's not much here. I think that that's totally wrong. I think this movie is completely misunderstood. Um, and I will, I'll be revisiting it for sure. This movie, I think, perfectly exemplifies the thing we were talking about at the beginning, not even about sex scenes, not about eroticism, but just around sort of the hegemony of like the American imaginary, right? Like everyone has been sort of flattened into this one demographic, the moviegoer, right? And there are no distinctions between not just ages races classes but also like ideas and 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 it's making some pretty like noxious art uh in terms of the media that's coming out in our current moment and I think this film is a really beautiful example of something that is the exact opposite of what we're given today Um, And also is for a certain type of moviegoer, right? The reason not everyone is going to love this movie is because it's challenging, because it's complicated. It's It's one of those rare movies. It's not for everyone. It's one of those rare movies that is not for everyone. And like, look, I will talk shit about a fucking movie. We like, love doing that. Oh, I, yeah. I, you've shown me plenty of movies where I'm just like, get me the fuck out of here. <laughs> um, so it's not even that it's like, oh, everything's good, right? But I do think that there is like a readiness with which things are dismissed that comes more from like an impatience and I think like a myopia than like the thing itself that is being dismissed being bad. Yeah, I completely agree. You know, we, I, I feel like the the term is generally like a flattening, right? I think the flattening has happened. I think, I think we are post flattening now. We're in a, we're in a new era, which I'm going to refer to as the smoothening, you know, <laughs> just based on what we were talking yes. about. Yeah. We're, 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 we're flat, but now we need to smooth the exactly. edges. Exactly. We're, we're just, uh, we, we've gotten it pressed down to about a quarter inch thick. Yeah. Uh, and now it's just the sanding and, and yeah, this is the smoothening people. That's the, mm, the era we're fun. in now. Post, post flattening, inter smoothening. Resist the smoothening. Yeah. Be the texture. <laughs> Be the wrinkle. That's me, man. I'm the texture. <laughs> you are the texture. You're the color on the show. <laughs> you're, uh, you're the ostensible third mic on a two mic program if for no other reason than because of my hair that's right like yeah. so you can't smooth out something that curly no you really can't no you cannot uh but that'll do it for us today as always you can follow along with us at hit factory pod if you were listening to this you were already a patron of the show although i did promise to unlock this at some point so uh maybe you're listening to this uh after the fact if so go now to patreon.com slash hit factory pod give us five dollars a month bonus episodes bi-weekly uh, over there on Patreon. Shout out to our capitalist overlords. Their names are Linda and Jesse K. We'll catch you all the next time. See ya. See ya.